0: You're listening to the Real Estate Runway podcast, powered by Quattro Capital, where we are all about alternative business and investment strategies to help you amplify life and maximize wealth. Here's your host, the recovering engineer turned multifamily investor, Chad Sutton. All right, folks, today we're gonna to talk with Drew Brenneman of, he's the founder and CEO of Brenneman Capital. This is a long-standing group who's been around since around 2005. And I think, you know, they, they've got experience in just about every commercial real estate asset class out there have since, you know, ex- developed an expertise and a niche in multifamily. But, you know, anyone has who, who has been operating and survived through the Great Recession and now what we're doing today is worth listening to. So we're going to get into some points here. We're going to talk about the market today, you know, some information around you know, how to not chase returns, but look at risk profile as an LP investor. So stay tuned for that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about where he and I see things going today and and some of the risk uh, that's out there that that unfortunately may have some reckoning. So anyway, before we get into the episode, if you get any value out of the show, folks like subscribe, swipe, share, whatever thing you're looking at this show on and interacting with it with, just share and interact with it because that is the way that we are going to get to more people like you. So pay it forward, make sure others hear the show just like you did. Without further ado, let's get into it. All right. All right. All right. Real Estate Runway family. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. I'm your host, Chad Sutton, and I'm joined today with Drew Brenneman of Brenneman Capital. Brenneman, how are you, Drew? How are you today? Good to see you, my friend. Great. Thanks for having me, Chad. Appreciate it. Excited to be here. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, before, you know, we get into the meat of the episode today, which I'm so excited for this conversation, as we typically do, I know a lot about you, the guests do not. So give us a few minutes of just who you are, how you founded Brennanman Capital. You've been playing in this space since like 2005, so maybe touch on some cool stuff and lessons you learned along the way. But who are you today and, and what made you into the operator you are today?
1: Yeah, so I bought my first deal when I was 19 back in 2005, just with money that I had made in high school was when I was going to college at UW Madison, bought four deals while I was there, had invested all my own money. Then I got a full-time job up in Minnesota working for a really large apartment developer there. And that's where I met my first investor. So one of my coworkers, he actually, you know, I kind of told him what I was doing and we met with his dad and the three of us started buying deals together. And from 2009 to 2019, uh, we bought about $100 million of property together, all product types in the Twin Cities and then also in Chicago. And then since then of about a little over doubled uh, the assets that we have where we're just over $200 million of property today. Where we've since 2019 expanded the investor base where it's not just one investor anymore. You know, originally I was doing all product types, like I mentioned, so retail and office, industrial, multifamily. And um the the deals we've done, I mean, they've all been solid. You know, our average return is a twenty four percent IRR, Uh, and so, not on like short hold periods either on a five point eight year average hold period. So the multiples like in the in the twos, and then um on the deals we haven't sold, it's a similar return profile. You know, we were focusing on um, you know, a lot of more core plus kind of quality deals. So not every deal being like a older building that needed renovation, a lot of stuff where there was just a lot of loss to lease on the rent roll you know a newer nicer deal that was owned by typically a developer that didn't run it as well as we could we picked it up we raised the rents then we would do a full cash out refi we've done uh 13 uh refinances is where we've increased the loan balance enough within a, a year or two of purchase where we've been able to return all the equity so we've done that on 13 deals now of the 35 or so that i've been a part of um and then really in 2021, we realized we should specialize. It's a very competitive investment in real estate. And I think this would be something maybe to talk about longer if you want, but where we, you know, I was just kind of like a generalist the first, you know, 10 or so years or maybe even 15 where we we did good deals like I was talking about, but we weren't specialized. So then we would go up against, you know, someone who maybe only did retail properties in Minnesota for the last 40 years. And, you know, obviously they knew more than we did if that was the dynamic. So we, don't you know, set out to sort of create our own advantage through specializing in multifamily and the markets we pick and some other things that we're doing, but that's, yeah, that's been the run so far. I'm, you know, I was sort of surprised in college when I bought uh 2 million of property, you know, it's a little
0: surprise. We got to 200 million and it's still, still growing. So you say that as if it's commonplace here. I mean, what you've accomplished is astounding, Drew. I mean, and, and just the, the scoreboard there, I mean, having, what did you say? 13 opportunities where you've done, not just a refi, but a cash out refi. Yeah, full cash out
1: refis, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's something where it's like the average time from purchase to refinance was 18 months, roughly something I think I'm estimating high on that, where basically, we, you know, we try to get it through one or two leasing cycles where most of these deals were in Chicago and their leasing is really seasonal between May and yeah. uh, August, really. So you want to get all your rent roll, your whole rent roll to turn then, and then uh, you get peak rents. So, yeah, we would run it through one or two leasing cycles, and then if, you know, we... Yeah, we were buying deals where we'd look at and go, this rent should be two thousand dollars, and then we should separate the parking. And right now they're getting seventeen hundred with parking, like that kind of profile, like that sort of loss to lease. And then we were doing Freddie uh, SBL loans on everything, so go in with the flexible three one zero 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 prepay, and then uh, you know do a max proceeds refi on the way out. So, and that was you know in part the strategy because we had a, a fixed amount of money we were working with with the first investor. Where we took a three million dollar on this series of deals to Chicago once a three million dollar investment from him, bought about ten million dollars of property, uh raised the value, raised the n o i did our refinance, then just pulled out the three million, bought another ten, did it again, pulled out the three million, did it again, pulled out where we just kept repeating the process. <laughs> not easy to do looking back on it, but you know we were just focused on doing good deals, and we bought you know two to four things a year, and it just started of started adding up over time so
0: yeah. And honestly, I'd say, you know, from a risk mitigation perspective, good deals and good financing. What what I don't hear in there is, is a lot of short term variable rate debt that was used along the way. It was it was your pretty standard, not predictable. It fits in the box, they'll lend to you, you know, Freddie Mac small balance loan with flexible prepay so that you could tap into that equity. Right. So you probably could sleep at night, too.
1: Yeah. That's one thing that was, you know, was really nice about Chicago, where the cap rates were always, uh, positive leverage, a big spread between the interest rates and cap rates where, you know, the lowest cap rates ever got in Chicago for multifamily would be say five and a quarter. And to your point, yeah, if I know you're, you're in Nashville and then, you know, anybody in the Sun Belt, especially, you know, if uh, I I moved to Texas now, so, you know, if you were buying deals in Texas, like a lot of those were, you know, a three cap on the trailing 12. So you, you couldn't, Get much leverage with a fixed rate loan. So then you're forced, if you wanted to push leverage, at least not everyone wants to do that. But if you did, to go with yeah, floating rate loan, and now that's causing a lot of trouble for people, you know, because then you know rent growth has, has stopped, you know, value is pulling back with interest rates going up, and you're left with a loan where maybe it went from yeah, three and a half percent to now eight or nine, uh, and you're going to need to refi in the next year or two. So yeah, if you weren't appropriately yeah, really
0: what... hedged, you're hurting right now, right? So that makes yeah. sense.
1: That's one thing I learned 2009, it was like everyone who got hurt, it was from the loan maturities. It was that, you know, like general growth properties, like they went bankrupt because they had all their loans ending essentially in 2009, over half their portfolio. And then there was no, 2009, there was no debt, there was no equity, there were no tenants, there was nobody. And so I think that's, I learned from that. And yeah, so a lot of the loans we did on those Freddie SBL loans, what I liked about it was it was, it might've been a five-year fixed rate period to start, but then it had a 15-year floating rate tail where you could just prepay at, you know, at par or at 1% uh, prepay. What's nice about that is if you run into a situation like today, and let's say your loan was ending in 2023, you could just go floating rate till it was more favorable to refinance. Your rate's going to adjust. It's good. it's adjustable during that period. So it would go up and you would have less cash flow, Or, but at least you're not forced with the hard maturity where you might need to do a heavy cash and refinance. That's something I learned in 2009 is really important today. So if people haven't haven't thought about that. They, I would encourage them to.
0: Well, that that's very important, Drew. Because I mean, it, every recession happens for different reasons, right? And and 08 09 was a different reason than today. But nonetheless, we are in a similar situation where what's going to hurt people is maturities, and unfortunately, at this point, interest rates being out of control. If you have anything floating. Just say that again, for those who may not have caught that the first time, you learned that in 2009, these fixed rate agency loans, you know, have the back end floating rate component. So just for the audience, is that prevalent in all agency loans, all Freddie Fannie, or is that a particular type?
1: No, that's really, I think, only available in the Freddie SBL program. So that's a program that they lend on loan balances between $1 million and and so that's a nice program because then there's no, it's, it's not like lending from a bank or some of these places where like, okay, the market's tough. We don't want to put money out. Like Freddie and Fannie are always lending. That's, yeah, that's a really nice streamlined program for deals that are that size. And then if you do any fixed rate uh, period, you whether it's a five year seven year or 10 year, you could decline this if you don't have to do it, but there's an option at no additional cost to have a floating rate period after your fixed rate period. You may have some interest only if you want, but when there's principal and interest, you're amortizing at a 30 year am, but the loan term would be 20 years. So you might have a five year fixed rate period. Then the next 15 years are floating rate and you're paying on a 30 year uh, amortization schedule and you can prepay it early, you know, or at least for, there's a lot of different yield maintenance options, but you are prepayment options, including yield maintenance and step downs. But so there's a lot of things you can pick from in. It's pick from it. So you can customize it to your business plan. And so that's been a program we've liked. Once you get into the, you know, over seven and a half million loan amount, then you're more in the Freddie and Fannie conventional programs. They don't have that floating rate period. And so then, you know, really you want to start thinking about not having too many deals ending at the same time in terms of when the loans come due. So that's something we have a chart. We keep track of that on. And if you invest in commercial properties, you will need to do the same thing with your lease maturities. You don't want to have too many ending at the same time. And then same thing, you don't want the leases ending at the same time your loans ending, you know, in commercial properties. That's a recipe for disaster. So,
0: yes, exactly. Thank you for going down that rabbit hole with us a little bit, Drew. And, you know, I think this kind of segues perfectly into one of the topics we wanted to hit today. And that is, you know, look, if you're an investor out there today or even an operator, we can go there, too. You know, I think the challenge that we see is chasing returns. And by the way, folks, when you chase money, it runs to quote the famous Murray's Philogene on our team here. But when you chase money, it runs. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the good practices that you have either taught your investors or that you've kind of seen manifest themselves in your career on, you know, maybe not chasing the number, but chasing the risk profile on the deal specifically. I know we have a lot to say about that.
1: Yeah. And I think too, yeah, because that's something that I've noticed and, you know, I've, uh, you know, just talk to a lot of LPs. And then also if you talk to like your point of contact at like a CrowdStreet or Realty Mogul as like a deal sponsor, like they'll tell you what raises money the best. And it's it's very different than what I would invest in, or I, I would assume you would too, Chad, where for the most part, you know, most passive investors, they sort of view all real estate as the same, whether it's a office building apartment building. It's so this is a real estate investment. It's it's similar. They don't dig into like the different nuances between the two and how much more risky one type could be from the other. And same thing with development versus acquiring existing. You know, they would think of the same risk profile exists maybe on a apartment development as an acquisition deal. And not every investor, but especially from a lot of the ones that I talk to, especially when you talk to these online portals, it's everyone is just out the LPs for the most part chasing returns. Meaning if an office building in I'm from the Milwaukee area, so Milwaukee, you know the it's a this Rust Belt market that had a 20% IRR projected, that would raise money better than a 12% IRR multifamily deal in let's say Austin, Texas, where I live now, where the office deal has no trends in its favor at all, and it's it's let's say it's a lease-up play and has construction risk, and you don't know what the market rents are yet because you haven't signed your leases. You're going to need to refinance out of your bridge loan once you're stabilized. And then there's all these different moving pieces. And so people actually doing this business, when you look at what they buy, like the long-term owners, they rarely buy those really risky deals. They're buying stuff where it's newer, nicer generally stabilized deals. I still look at deals in Minneapolis and Widener just bought a huge portfolio there of newer stuff in the uptown neighborhood. And there's no value add reno play or anything. And they, they own thousands of apartments. It's just, they feel like they're buying at a good price. Minneapolis is still down uh, from everything that happened there in 2020. It's simple. They're just buying low and keeping the moving pieces at a minimum. I don't think they underwrote those to like a 20 IRR. They own billions of dollars of apartments, and that's what those types of owners do. So it's interesting to see, kind of to compare what the sort of families that have been doing real estate for a really long time, that have made a lot of money in like New York or Chicago or these places. It's a lot of long-term ownership and not like flipping in and out of properties in a couple of years or in these like really risky product types. That's something that I've noticed.
0: Uh, I'd be curious what you saw yourself, so... Yeah, that's really good insight. And it's interesting because, I mean, the last three or four years in particular, I mean, and I'm guilty of it too. We have had some deals that we were able to exit in two years and it was great. Uh, although you hate selling anything, right? But when you work that hard to get that basis, but there are some yeah. things we chose to liquidate and get hit a couple of home runs. But I think it's important to note that folks, that's not typical. We were in an environment between 2018 and 2022, you know, before things started to, to kind of go the other way where cap rates were compressing very quickly interest rates were artificially like bottomed out they were cheaper than we'll probably ever see them again in our lifetime you can sell positive leverage and, and basically all you had to do was part of your business plan and 200 basis point cap rate compression the next year so th- that is something that i think the market got our lps a little bit drunk and so if you're an investor out there think about that if it seems too good to be true it probably is today because we're we're more approaching the steady state world of, and it's funny. I was actually talking to some, some uh, at a lender consult, not, or a lender symposium not long ago. And the consensus in the lending market is look, we're not in that bad a shape right now. We're just approaching normalcy, right? I mean, the rates we're at today and the lending practices we're at today are really just approaching normal. And so you're going to have to expect that, you know, real estate is a great investment. You get great tax benefits, you get longevity, you get cash flow. But We may not see things hitting, you know, 25 IRRs for a little while. There will be some, but I think that's very important, as Drew mentioned, that you can't just change the numbers. And y'all have heard me say this on the show numerous times, and Drew is the same way, I'm sure. I can make a spreadsheet, tell you whatever I want it to, and put it on a flashy chart, right? There's a handful of numbers I can change to make a cap rate look really low and a return look really high or something like that. But you really have to be focused on your risk-adjusted return. I can't say it enough times. And what does that mean? That means think about the fact that like, just use your common sense. This is a tangible, real asset, and that's why we love it. But what does that mean? It means you need to worry about, well, is this in a huge high crime area? Is it in a zone where insurance rates could triple on me? And they're not reflecting that on the pro forma. Is it an area where You know, just in general, jobs are leaving. Like, are people not going to be here to rent this building? You got to be thinking about stuff like that. And also, to your point, you know, I've seen a lot of, I I call it the triple value add, right? Like the triple crown, where you've seen some deals that are like 60s builds that have been, I don't know what's the term, value added three times this cycle, right? They're on their third value add. And it's like, it doesn't be on their platinum plus finish. Yeah, it's nuts. It's like, okay, well, You can go in and and change these granite countertops to quartz countertops. Like, okay, I'm just throwing money at a 60s piece of junk. And the challenge, Drew, is, I mean, it doesn't take a moron to see that, okay, if I just divide what the average salary in the area is by the annual rent, and it's like 45%, well, you don't want to be above, you know, 30. There's a reason lenders don't lend to you if you're more than 33% debt-to-income ratio. Rent is the same way, right? So, folks, you have to look. At the tangibles on the project and think about like, if you're saying what can go wrong, you're in for it, you know, because that's the, that's the stuff we have to think about. Anyway, I'm on a soapbox, Drew, anything you want to interject there? (laughs) Yeah, I think, no, I think you're right. As a LP,
1: there's a lot of this little in the weed stuff that I think it's unrealistic for them to, uh, them to really evaluate. And so I think really what I would spend time on just to build on what you're saying is really evaluating the sponsor. Kind of what's their track record? Where if you know they they started in two thousand twenty or two thousand nineteen, like they're they're so new, uh, they haven't been through a downturn or you know even I guess And so I think because a lot of that you want to see how they've gone full cycle on deals, what they you know how they underwrite, how they think about things. So I, I would spend time evaluating the sponsor and what you can. And to your point, a lot of the things that you yeah. mentioned, you can evaluate as a LP. Where you're talking about it does the deal or market have tailwinds for, or headwinds and that's something just you don't need any fancy technology to know like what areas are people moving to like it's already you already know I mean it's already talked about where where the people are going and what the trends are are people you know do they still need houses do they is there less shopping in retail or what's going on with office like everyone already you know as an LP understands that and then like that means that then you need to factor that in on your return so you'd yeah you'd want to expect a way higher return on that office deal and they also have a way higher likelihood to underperform because you're fighting the trends with a deal like that.
0: I love that. You know, and and talking about risk factors and and you know you you really went into a great point there, Drew, that, you know, I think one of the biggest risks with an operator is being spread too thin. It's dispersion, right? And when you're choosing an investment vehicle, think about that as the horse. That is a horse in a Kentucky Derby. But remember, the horse alone doesn't win the race. And he's smiling because he knows where I'm going. The jockey on the horse is part of who wins that race. You can put you know, an a inexperienced rider on top of that amazing, massive thoroughbred, and they won't win the race. You know, They may not even finish the race. So they may get hurt
2: along the way. This episode is brought to you by Agora's Investment Management Solution. Are you a GP or syndicator still using spreadsheets or an outdated investment management platform? Advance to Agora. The next step in investment management evolution. Agora's customers raise capital 40% faster and reduce operational expenses by 25%. With Agora, you can collect commitments faster, raise more capital by creating beautifully designed data rooms, public brochures, and automated subscription flows. Manage all your investor relationships efficiently with the most advanced investor CRM on the market. Delight your investors with a beautifully designed investor portal which is fully customized to fit your brand and integrate seamlessly into your website. Distribute payments in a click directly from the platform and automatically generate and send all the reports and statements your investors need. Agora is suited for all types and all sizes of GPs or syndicators, starting with an affordable five ninety nine dollars a month subscription plan. Click the link in the description to book a live demo and learn what Agora can do for your business. Agora, better investment
0: management. You and I were talking before this about how you know, you as an operator have been very successful with multiple property types, but you eventually decided, you know, I really need to focus and become an expert in this niche, right? And you, so you chose a niche and that's, I believe that's where you mostly operate now. Maybe we talk about A, what realizations helped you lead to that? And then B, you know, what additional risk might that add to an investor? Like I I know there's some operators out there who claim to be great at all different property types. So maybe they are, but I would expect that to be a large organization. Maybe they're not. So let's go into that a little bit and and just love to hear your thoughts and experience on that.
1: Yeah. So we, I guess over the years, I realized, you know, where, and a lot of investors would ask, so LPs, what's your edge? You know, Chicago, where I used to live, there's a lot of former traders there and they're always looking for an edge in a trade. And so I thought about like, what really can we do to develop our edge? Cause, you know, right. I think the, yeah, the people where you see these companies where they're doing all sorts of product types and and whatnot, yeah, they're generally very large companies and then have specialized people within the company where okay. maybe the company does every product type, but then they have people who have only done hotels since they were, you know, 25 years old and they're, you know, 50 running the stuff. So we really drilled into what could we do? What has gone well? And we look back and multifamily on our deals perform the best and everyone else's deals. So we've got our hands on some NACREF data, which is a real estate trade group. I think it's the National Counselors of Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries, what that stands for. But they have an index that's supposed to mirror private real estate returns. And from 1990 to 2020, multifamily had higher returns with the lowest return standard deviation for every hold period, three, five, seven, ten 10 years. Than any other product type uh, out of the big four: industrial, office, retail, multifamily. And then you think about too, it has the best debt availability with Fannie and Freddie. It has one-year lease terms, which are great when inflation's running up. That's great, where you can reset your rents annually. And then you're diversified over many, many tenants compared to like a commercial deal where you might have you know two or five tenants only. We focus on multifamily, and then we thought, what can we do to outperform the the others in multifamily? And so. We created a market outlook model where we went back and figured out what is correlated with multifamily price appreciation and what drives that. And then we made a model that's weighted for those variables by MSA Uh, and the data comes in by zip code. So then we have it by zip code too. And then we looked at what we could get our hands on for predictive information and then ran it out into the future. So based on what's happened the last 20 years that's been correlated with multifamily price appreciation. We know what markets are poised to continue to go up the most. We also looked at what's the range of the standard deviation of return. So meaning like maybe Florida or Phoenix or Las Vegas would be the projected to go up the most. But in 2009, they had the biggest drop out of any market where like some of those cities that are states that just riled off prices went down 50% or more, whereas in Dallas and Austin, for example, prices only went down 12% from peak to trough on uh single family homes and, and multifamily. And so we factor that in, and then we started looking by zip code and insert and created a, a scoring system by zip code. We call the location score. And essentially what that does, it gives a score from it's in standard deviation. So it's pretty much every place is between minus two and positive two with positive being the best outcome. The higher it is, the better. It tells us what's the rate of change for growth in in that zip code and then or how high is it scoring for these more established things like income, educational attainment, different things. So then we know what MSAs will be the top ones based on what's happened the last 20 years. It's not guaranteed, I guess, but based on uh, what's happened before. And then we know what parts of the MSA are the best. And then we focus on just those areas.
0: That's pretty powerful. And then look, folks, you got to take data, turn it into information and use that information to make decisions. And what Drew's talking about here is like, you know, look, the vehicle is part of the battle, right? I can buy a great boat anywhere in the world, right? But it's it'd be nice if you bought a boat where the water is rising, not where it's going to be a drained out lake bed at some point, right? So <laughs> that's that, right. what he's talking about is how do you make sure you find the places where the water is rising and in a good way? You know, I think just kind of us up for our last question, Drew. You know, where do you see us going from here? You know, it sounds like you're still committed to this asset class. Uh, you know, we kind of have, have acknowledged some of the sins of this cycle that I think some people are going to pay for. And Warren Buffett is on record saying, "Look, when the water recedes, the naked man is exposed, and we're going to see some naked people here pretty quick." I think, unfortunately, but where do you think we're going, Drew?
1: I I, mean, I think multifamily has a still all the tailwinds at its back. We're still underhoused. That's most of these markets. The properties are selling around replacement costs. So it's not like uh building is it's so profitable for the developers and, and easy. It's not, especially interest rates on construction loans being, you know, so for plus four, you know, being a 9% all in rate, you know, your interest rate triple in the last two years, that's not helping your, your deal pencil. And you got to put in way yeah. more equity when, you size it out with a 9% interest rate. So, I mean, yeah, my crystal ball for the next few years, I think the Midwest is barely going to pull back at all. No one was doing floating rate borrowing because you didn't need to. You could just stabilize or you could just size to, uh, I mean, in a lot of markets like in Chicago, you could buy a new deal and do fixed rate and put only 20% down if you wanted. I mean, because wow. you're buying at a five and a half cap, let's say, or six. There was positive leverage there already. We're three yeah. or four, yeah. So you'd be at a one thirty debt cover at eighty uh, percent LTV. Where you contrast that within the Sun Belt, where rents had grown so much that people were okay buying, you know, a three cap because uh, you could raise rents and stabilize it to pushing a five cap pretty fast. So then that made sense with where things were. But the market moved, interest rates moved so much while you were doing that business plan now where all those deals that were done that way and it was most every property sold in the Sun sunbelt from 2020 to 2022 were set up that way they all are going to need to have capital added to them if you did the floating rate higher leverage stuff cuz let's say you you put 25% down you did your value add but then you know rents plateaued or pulled back in a lot of markets and then values dropped cuz interest rates went up maybe you know best case you are probably it's worth what you have into it, but you only put 25% down. And now today those same loans are sizing to like 50% LTV. Yeah. So if that investor, if they put in, let's say $5 million of equity to buy the property, they might need to put another 5 million in to keep that deal going. And, you know, a lot of people they'll elect to do that. And, uh, you know, if they have the money or access to it where, you know, they can call capital from their investors, but many won't, you know, they're short sighted. I mean, they might just be like, let me just liquidate this thing. I, it's, we're not going to make any money anyways and move on to a new, better deal. And then I think there'll be people with that mentality, um, which that would be a real disappointment if I was an investor in a deal like that. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I'd try to fight it out. But I think there will be people that throw in the towel or their LPs are throwing in the towel saying, I don't have confidence in the deal or the operator or both. And I just want to get what I can out and be done. So I think there's going to be in the Sun Belt in about a year when the three-year floating rate deals from 2021 come up for sale I think there's going to be deals 2024 2025 by sellers that you know have to sell and then how good of deals those are will kind of come down to how many how much stuff's actually on the market because right now there haven't been a lot of great deals because transaction volume slowed so much so I'd say there's less buyers right now in the market but there's transaction volume dropped to dropped like 80 percent in most markets so there's there's still more buyers than there are deals or in terms of the drop, like there's the buyer count dropped less than the seller count did in terms of the real sellers. So we haven't seen like too much, like people haven't seen any steals yet pricing wise, but I think deals can come the next two years. And then, but after that, then there's going to be such a big drop off in new deliveries that no new projects are starting now. I mean, I guess some are, but it's going to be a huge drop off because of the interest rate environment, cost environment, Equity and debt being scarce. And so then in 2026, 2027, rents are gonna be running up big time because you're gonna be having such little new supply coming. So it's gonna be a choppy couple of years followed by some really great ones. So I think we we have a deal we put under contract and are raising money on now in Chicago. And we we like it because it's nothing needs to change with the market. It's we're stabilizing it to a seven cap. We're borrowing in the low sixes, fixed rate. So we have positive leverage, cash flow and an upside from there so it's I think those deals still work but if it was that was like a deep value add and we needed to refi in three years I mean I don't know where things will be in three years but on a deal like that our base case is just hold it for 10 and we know like uh we'll get to the other side of whatever the next couple of years looks like and have a big run-up in rents and values and everything and we'll be cash flowing the whole time so I think that's kind of deal to do today so and then pick up the Sunbelt bargains you know in about a year <laughs>
0: Yeah, be prepared to hold for a while. And I wonder if, is that why you moved to Texas, by the way, to get ready to pick up on some opportunities?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is more than just uh, numbers <laughs> on a spreadsheet for me. I think the future of the growth is is in the Sunbelt, so I believe in it. And that's when we looked at our data that's already been going on since about 2008, yeah. where, you know, when I first started in 2005, we'd go to these webinars by Marcus and Melchap or whoever, and they just talk about what markets, number one, New York or San Francisco would be like the webinar, you know. And then since about the mid 90s, that's how it worked. You know, all the gateway primary markets were the best ones. And then in about 2008, 2012, depending on the market, it flipped where the best markets have all been the big name Sunbelt ones, you know, including, you know, Nashville and the Carolinas and the mountain states where it's shifted. And I think that's continuing. And so I yeah, I wanted to be in the middle of it. And Austin's a fun, city too. So if you're going to pick from one of those, it's a good one to pick. I'd also like to be in in the middle. We're trying to pick up deals in Austin, in Dallas, in Phoenix. And I think at some point we'll be Nashville and the Carolinas down the line. Florida scares me a little with the hurricanes every other year and the insurance market almost being uninsurable. So I think Florida will be a skip for us, but that has still some of the best fundamentals on the demand side in the country. I'm just worried about all the other... You know, it's hard enough doing these deals. And then you got to worry about a hurricane coming every couple of years. That's, uh,
0: yeah, insurance costs tripling on you and things of that sort. So fair enough. Well, Drew, yeah. lots of great nuggets today. Thank you for coming on and giving us all your expertise. And, uh, look, I want to get into the quattro questions before we leave. You ready? Yeah. So I think, I think we heard a lot of your superpower today, but what is your superpower in life or business? And how does it serve you well? I think it's actually my mindset. So, in yeah.
1: like, it just, we didn't talk a lot about when I first got started, but I had no, my parents were both teachers. I didn't have any mentors at that time. I just had the money and believed I could do it and I did it. And then as I got into bigger deals, I said, I kind of felt the same way. I looked at the other people doing it. I mean, what seemed like what set them apart was they were willing to take a risk and, you know, have people, you know, have experts like attorneys and lenders and people along the way, but they didn't seem like they were doing anything too special. I mean, some people I've met and it's like, they went to Harvard twice and you're like, okay, that's another level. But most of them were, were, you know, I felt like on my level. So I'm like, I believed I could do it and I did it. So I think a lot of this is your mindset where talk to, you know, a fair amount of people trying to get started and you could see they're just hung up on having everything be perfect or know every little detail. And I think, you know, just kind of my, my mindset and, and, uh, Having a realistic approach, but not overconfident or, or also too, I don't know, self-conscious about getting started. So I was uh, afraid to take yeah. a risk, went for it, and just kind of kept building slowly.
0: Mindset's a great one, Drew. And, and so let's flip the coin over. You know, what's your biggest failure, life for business again, and what you learn from
1: Yeah, I was going to say something about where we measured a square footage in this, in a, in a building, but I think, you know, I got divorced in 2021. And I mean, I'd say that's probably the biggest failure. I'm still trying to figure out what I learned from that, but you know, I definitely learned a lot about my, myself in that and just, you know, what I'd be looking for in the future. But I mean, yeah, that's the biggest, you know, probably failure to date, but I got a five-year-old son out of it. So all, all good. So
0: Yeah, that's a good win and a a tough time. And I hear you're still learning. I think we're still learning on some of this stuff every day. So touche there. Let's go to question number three. So, you know, here at Quattro, philanthropy is really powerful to us. It's one of our four pillars after all. And I love to give my guests on the show an opportunity just to share your philanthropic heart. Where do you focus on your time, talents and treasures and giving back to the world, making it a better place?
1: Yeah, really sort of two things. And if somebody wants to send me a message, I'm not joking with this. Feel free. Ask me questions. Like if someone asks a question that's not, you know, how do I do a whole deal or something? If someone has like a a question, like I'm stuck on this or how do I do this? What do you do for this? Like I, I always answer people. I just I don't you know, you can send me a message on. LinkedIn or email me or whatever. But I like I I still try to respond because I have mostly learned from asking others how they're doing stuff where I'm still doing it, where I went to UW Madison for college. I majored in real estate last week. I was at their biennial. They have a conference every two years in Madison. And I told my girlfriend when I got back, I feel like the stuff I learned at this, if someone said, like, what's the price? Like, what would you pay if someone was like, you'll have this info. And this is what this guy did who has billions of dollars of property and explain exactly what he does for raising capital like high level like what he has these different four different people doing and where he met private equity and he's getting money from like the saudis and stuff and just i told her honestly i'd probably pay a 100 grand for this like what i learned and it was it's was, you know 350 dollars to go you know so i, I think good roi right there so i have learned mostly that way and so i'm fine answering people's questions but i mean and i got the answer i did from that just big dog in real estate, because I had a very targeted question about raising capital, what he has his employees doing, who is he contacting, what, or what are they doing? And it wasn't just general, like, how do I get investors? It was really targeted. And then more on like actual philanthropy, like I did big brother, big sister in Chicago for a little bit. I'd like to do something like that here in Austin. I mean, I had mentioned my parents were teachers and my mom in particular taught at a school where they really did not have a lot of money and, and the people that went there and kids were living in closets, not having bedrooms and they were all there for breakfast cause they had no food. And I mean, it's, you know, there's people that need a lot of help. And I mean, it's, I got obviously a soft spot for kids as I'd imagine most people would. So I think I would like to do that, but also I do, I've had my hands full with um, moving in my, my own kid for a minute, but I think that would maybe be something fun to do together too with him, my son.
0: Yeah, folks. So check out Big Brother, Big Sister. You know, I'm I'm sure there's one in your area that's a fantastic organization. And, you know, and your other one that leads us to our fourth question How do we get in touch with you? What's the best way to find Drew Brenneman?
1: Yeah, I think the best way is, is if it's for me, just I'm on every social media channel at Drew Brenneman. I even, my sister's in social media down here for a jewelry company in Austin. So she even got me to sign up for a TikTok account, although I don't really know how to use it almost. It's so much happens when you open that thing. But, uh, yeah, add Drew Brenneman everywhere if you like social media. Otherwise, if you want to, you know, learn really more about our company, go to Brenneman.com. We have a passive investing guidebook there that LPs can learn. Kind of all this terminology we've been throwing out, best practices. We were talking a lot about risks with Chad here today. We got a whole section on risks, you know, 10, 20 things listed out what the different types of risks to think about from the financing to the quality of the property. And then you can sign up to be an investor there, learn about our deals, um, just kind of everything. I have a podcast too, the Brennerman Blueprint. And that we get into talking about real estate investing for active and passive folks. So that's been been fun doing that. This these podcasts are a bit of work. So commend you, Chad, for doing the the work you're doing. So
0: Hey, likewise. I didn't realize we had a fellow podcaster on here. But yes, it's uh yeah. it's it's a great way to give back, but there is a ton that goes on behind the scenes, folks. So that just reminds me here. Before we let Drew go, go check out his podcast. And if you got any value out of the show, folks, like it, subscribe, click it, swipe it, share it, whatever thing you're watching this on, because we're everywhere. Interact with it. It's the only way to pay it forward and get to more people just like it. Drew. Thanks for being amazing today. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, your time. And I look forward to hopefully doing this again soon, maybe as a little market update down the road.
1: Sounds great. Yeah, let's come back in a year and see if any of those deals that I was talking about came to fruition. So,
0: Yeah. Yeah, that and we'll we'll hold him to his predictions, folks. So we will.
1: Yeah, that (laughs) sounds good. Yeah, thanks, Chad. This is fun. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Want to generate higher return and drive alpha for your commercial real estate firm? Now you can with Lobby CRE by 30 Capital. Lobby CRE is an
2: asset management platform designed to manage and optimize cash flow for faster returns and more visibility into
0: performance. Shift your strategy with the market, not because of it. Identify opportunities and mitigate risk now rather than later. save more than eight hours per week through automation. Click the link in the show notes to learn more and book a demo. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that show today with Drew Brenneman. A lot of experience was just shared here. And so if you are an operator who's in trouble right now and you may have a loan coming due, some investors are not happy with you, reach out to us. I can't promise we can help, but I'd love to offer up our services and see if there's a way we can help you or at least help brainstorm the situation. But For the most part, folks, just recognize that we will all get through this time. It is a tough world out there with what's going on with the interest rates and such. But, you know, if you made good decisions in your investments and your sponsors made good decisions, your stuff is going to be just fine. So don't let the news scare you. And without further ado, let's conclude the episode. This has been another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. Until next time, over and out. We hope this episode was insightful and brought value to your day. If so, please be awesome and leave us a five-star review. Find out how Team Quattro can help you at thequatroway.com. Until next time, this is the Real Estate Runway Podcast.